Is it smashable, your word? Yeah. My wines are completely <laughs> smashable. That is the quality of a great wine. Hi everyone, thanks for coming tonight. Really appreciate you guys taking the time to, uh, to join us to celebrate some pretty cool wines. So um, why don't we go around the table and uh, tell, each, tell everyone a little bit about what you do, where you're up to. Sorry. Sure, my name's Josh Lakovic and uh, I produced a podcast introducing English wine over the past year. Uh, interviewed both these two to my right hand side um, as part of that. And it was kind of a six part series kind of grouped together by region. Um, and I also run a weekly newsletter slash blog, uh, which is aimed at more of the general consumer as well. Um, I'm Adrian Pike. I'm the managing director and winemaker at Westville Vineyard, which is a small kind of, yeah, a small vineyard based in Kent. I'm Sergio Varillo. I am the co-founder and winemaker for uh, Blackbrook Winery, and we're an urban winery based in Battersea, focusing on Pinot Noir and Chardonnay still wines. Um, who wants to go first? Why don't we crack open the first bottle? Um, so this is our experimental wine. It's um, it's a traditional method sparkling wine made from Sable Blanc grapes uh, grown in Didcot, Oxfordshire. Um, so the, uh, part of our ethos is to um, do make single vineyard wines within two hours of our site in Battersea. So this is about an hour and a half away. Uh, the grower is Yew Tree Vineyards, run by a young guy named Ed Mitchum, who's a, I guess a vineyard manager for a number of different clients in Essex, and then started his own project in about six years ago. So this is the first, um, the, the first uh, crop he got off these vines. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, we're, we're Pinot Noir focused and Chardonnay focused. Um, this is just came out like the 11th hour and I had no idea what I was gonna do with it. It started its life as a still wine um, concept and then the base was so good that I decided to make more of an earlier, easier drinking stuff of sparkling wine just for a bit of fun. So um, it's, Fermented fib scent in barrel and then fib scent in tank. Um, indigenous fermentations, full malolactic, same sort of thing. Um, and then age for seven months and, and then put in bottle last May for secondary fermentation. And it's basically comes from the winery as is, undisgorged, um, and just a, just a real bit of fun. This is a thirst, this is a thirst. Uh, Thirst quencher. Um, so with, with all our wines, we like to give a subtle nod to, to the city we make wine in, um, and also a bit of a personal touch. So, so with how our labels are set out is, you know, we have um, the varietal of the year, our, our name, obviously. Um, and then with that, we have, we're single vineyards. So this is Utree Vineyard, as I mentioned. And then the name of the wine, we name all our wines because it's fun, why not? Um, and this is called GMF. Um, and GMF is, I'm not sure, well, you worked in music, right? So this is, it's a song by John Grant. Um, and I'm a huge fan of John Grant. So this is kind of like a, you get it? Yeah. 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 Um, and and uh, well, for, for those of you that don't know John Grant, don't know the song, um, GMF stands for greatest motherfucker. So it's quite a fun sort of, sort of contribute to it and it's a modest one, it's a modest <laughs> one. but it is and you'll try it and it'll be the same and in terms of our, our label um, this is the Green Park tube station going from Piccadilly to Jubilee and then the lettering and the border um, come from the New York City subway signs where my wife and I met so all of that 
is encompassed so you want to know as much or as little about the wine or the labels as, as you want to, really. It's just for, up for interpretation. And it's Seville Blanc. Seville, yeah, 100% Seville. So I call it the poor man's Chardonnay. It's, uh, it's grown a lot in upstate New York, um, and they make it, it handles barrel really well. And it's undisgorged, right? So it's a little bit cloudy. It's straight from the, the, the winery cellar. Um, you know, there's uh, zero sulfur in it. It's not like I'm a natural winemaker, but it's, it's, you usually add sulfur when you disgorge it, as, as we know. So it's just a, just a fun, smashable style of wine. Yeah, it's really nice. So how, how did you get into having an urban winery? Uh, by default. <laughs> um, so, you know, part of, I mean, most of, of us who, who get into winemaking, we, or even viticulture for that matter, we all sort of go and do stages or internships around the world. And so my traveling winemakers came to um, uh, gradual end in 2016, come back from New Zealand, trying to figure out what to do. And so I knew we wanted, so my wife is my, the other co-founder of Black Book, um, and she has a real job. <laughs> so um, she, uh, so we we're trying to figure out the future of, of, of our lives effectively. And I was applying for these jobs in, in the UK and I'd get either to the last couple and not get it because I didn't have any sparkling wine experience or the salary is too, too, too low. So effectively, Blackwick was born out of necessity. Um, and we wanted to do something a little bit smaller, um, more, grow a bit more organically, buy a few tons. And then that was a problem because no one would give us tank space or let us use our equipment. And so we said, well, and we're going to do it on our own. So what, whereabouts is the actual production facility then? So we're located in, in sort of the, the heart of Battersea. Um, we're in a little estate called Londonstone Business Estates. Um, it's a railway arch, it's about 250 square feet with 10 meter high ceilings. Um, and, and we are about a 10 to 15 minute walk down from the park and the bridge. So we're kind of tucked away and, and the state we're in is actually really food and drink centric. So we're, there's a distiller across the street from us um, there's some organic juicers on either side, and we have a meat supplier. And so, in fact, Lee and Sandeman have their, their warehouse there as well. So it's, it's quite a little estate. We all get along really well, and, and we, we try to help each other out as much as we can. Cool. Yeah, this is a great wine to start with. I mean, it's like exactly what I was craving after a long day in Central London. Like, I just need something refreshing. I just want something to just like help me clear the way of the day. It's a perfect primer for, for the rest of the table. So, no, no, really good. It's really nice. Great, Adrian, so why don't you tell us a bit about what, uh, what you brought tonight? Um, well, this wine that we're just drinking at the moment is, um, is Pellegrim. It's a sparkling wine, non-vintage sparkling wine. It's a blend of Pinot Meunier, Pinot Noir, and Chardonnay. But it's kind of quite heavy on the Pinots, um, and it's got 20% of reserve wines in there. Um, when we took over Westwell in 2017, this was a, a base wine um, that had been kind of prepared um, to become a uh, a kind of Prosecco rival. So the idea was to run something as a kind of um, a kind of cheaper version of an English sparkling wine, but with 20 grams of dosage to make it sweet. Um, and when we got in, we started tasting all the base wines and just thought that this base wine was slightly too flavorful to uh, dose with uh, 20 grams of sugar. <coughs> so we decided to make it into a, a non-vintage. It's now got nine grams of sugar in it, so less than half of what it was planned for. Um, I just think that the, the fruit is really kind of full in it, and it, it just seemed like such a waste to hide that behind sugar. So 
Um, I don't know what you think. You get a lot of the Pinot character through their nose, without a doubt. There's a lot of like ripe, red sort of fruit coming, apparently. Um, but the texture I like. And you, yeah. really, you really, really, really feel the kind of tickle of that spice, that like floral, spicy, earthy character of the Munier come through. And I just, I love that, especially when it kind of comes through in that, in that, in that, in that style. I think there's a lot from the, um, so our, our soil is kind of like, um, it's a kind of flinty loam over, over chalk, but there's loads of flint. So there's lots of flint on the top and it kind of rises up through. And I think you can taste that in most of the wines that we've got tonight, actually, that, we've, that I've brought. Um, and particularly in this, which with it being a non-vintage, I think it kind of shows the character of the Westworld site really well. How long was this in bottle for? Um, it's a quite a while, actually. I mean, it's a, it's a 2015 vintage, um, but John was disgorging it in batches, so it had been in, in bottle for quite some time now. I mean, it's been in bottle for over, tw over two years. Um, I think it's getting on for about two and a half. It's a wonderful tension on the palate too. I mean, it, it, and you know, it, it's it's filling. It's a bit ethereal, and it's got this really great kind of retro nasal aromatics. But it's just got this wonderful salinity as well. It's just yeah, it's yeah, really it's, nice. The textures are really like, really precise um, wine. It's got that kind of real red apple thing from the Pinots, but I think the salinity running through is really good. Now, I'm a big fan of of sort of Blanc de Noir styles of wine. I think they're really, particularly Meunier as a, as a as a sort of separate variety within, That's, within yeah. wines. It's you know, really interesting. Pinot Meunier seems to develop uh, that kind of real fruit flavor on our site. So we're looking at possibly doing a, I've got a um, indigenous yeast Pinot Meunier in tank at the moment that I'm thinking about doing a zero dosage separate. Um, normally we make the Pelegrim and we make a special cuvee, which is kind of vintage specific, yeah. um, tends to be more Chardonnay based. But the Pinot Meunier this year is really strong. Um, and I'm thinking about trying to do something which has got zero dosage on. Yeah, it's just such a, it adds such a wonderful character when you can tell that like it's it's ripened well or that it's grown well. Yeah. And it's just, there's this kind of, I always look for wines with contrast and it's got that, that kind of push-pull. And I love Pinot Meunier because it can bring this kind of spicy floral, pretty quality, the fruit is a unique character. But then it always, when it's when it's ripe or it's coming from like a, a, a good side or it's something there's this, and I, I, people always make a funny look when I say this, but I mean it in the most like uh, effusive and endearing way is that there's this kind of earthy kind of, Buttered parmesan, uh, buttered parmesan, kind of uh, poached asparagus kind of character, and it's when, when it's only that. If it's a bit underripe, it can be a bit like you know not very appetizing. But when it fits in this meld of all these other kind of complex characters, it just really gives a lot of complexity. In wine. you really feel so many layers in this wine. It's, yeah, it's I think what, what we're looking to do on the site is to is to get the fruit as ripe as possible and to leave it to the last minute. Um, I'm lucky to be working with Marcus, who was a vineyard manager at Davenport Vineyards for 20 years, and his his thing is always get the fruit as ripe as you possibly can. And this year we were picking after everybody had finished picking. Um, we didn't really start until after everyone had finished. So. You know, it's hard to be a hero in your hometown as a winemaker in, in the UK. So what's, what's it like? I mean, what's the, what are the challenges? I mean, what are the, what are the things, that, and what have you noticed changed in the last few years? Well, or have you noticed enough change? For me, I've been really lucky. Um, I've only been making wine on my own for the last two years, and we've had two incredible harvests. So it's like, you know, if you can't make great wine in those years, then you shouldn't be doing it. Um, and my job has really been to stay out of the way. It's just get the fruit as ripe as possible and then just let it come to fruition and do very little to it, um, which is what we've done. I've been really lucky that that's worked, you know, for the last couple of years. So we've had very little sofa, very little additions of anything, really. Um, lots of indigenous yeast ferments. Um, in a bad year, you know, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see what happens this harvest. Um, Marcus has this theory that you never get three great harvests in a row. We've had two. I'm not quite sure what's going to happen this year. But then the other side of that is obviously last year, the sun was 
know, we had beautiful sun during flowering. Um, so the promise is that this year could be good as well. It just depends on the ripening season, really. Um, I don't know about yourself. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm with you in the same sort of boat. You know, we started in 2017. I was not at all like a prominent figure in the English wine industry prior to that. Um, you know, instead of, I mean, I, I've worked in quite a few places, but never well known in, in the industry. Um, and for us, we're a bit of an anomaly because, well, one, we're an urban winery focusing on, on English fruit, right? So that's, that kind of throws people a bit. Secondly, we are a Pinot and Chardonnay producer, still wine. Then that throws everyone else for a loop. Um, so, Yeah, the, the, the received wisdom is that you can only make something from Pinot and Chardonnay yeah. still in a really great year. Exactly, um, exactly. We'll but it, well, I, I, we'll see. But it's I think it's a matter of getting the right site selection, you know. So the challenge is in terms of consumer facing, we've been really fortunate, and we've we've been, you know, like like Adrian, we've you know we've been well received within not only the consumer and the things, but also in the trades. You know, we're we're in a number of sort of high end restaurants and and wine bars throughout London, Southeast as well. So. The skepticism comes when they hear about what we do. Then they taste the wines, and then people sort of change beat a bit. So, it, but it's not so much the challenges in terms of selling the wine. It's challenges within the industry as a whole and trying to get uh, the growers to take you seriously. <laughs> Ultimately, kind of knock on doors, going like, and, and I have a very different model. I have like a micro-negos model, effectively. Right. So I'm, I, I work with growers who I feel have the best sites um, for what we're trying to achieve. And, and most people are, are planting sparkling clones. So for us, trying to get still clones, which is integral to what we do, um, in order to produce a wine that's not ripping your face off with acidity, um, is, is quite challenging within its own right. But uh, yeah, I, I think as a new business, as a, as a new kid on the block, and as someone who's not necessarily trying to make commercially driven wines, I, you know, it's, it's difficult for sure. So yeah, what, what, how, did you, how did you get into it anyway? What, what's, what's, the, what's the backstory here? Uh, I, I used to work in music and I kind of stopped listening to music and kind of thought I should probably try and do something else. And then funny enough, I left <laughs> the business I used to work for and that table there. That was, uh, I had a meeting there where I resigned, um, which is kind of unusual and this is the first time I've been back. Which is kind of slightly odd, um, but yeah, I, I wanted to look into doing something else. I'd kind of lost the passion, and wine was something that I was very passionate about at the time. And I started kind of looking around for how I could get into that. And um, I did lots of kind of visits to vineyards in France, and um, you know that kind of standard thing of going around. And then I tried um, a glass of Will Davenport's Horsemanden Dry um in a restaurant in soho and was just completely blown away by it. i just had no idea that you could make wine that tasted like that in england um up until that point i'd been you know trying english wines and being really shocked at the quality um not in a great way and then i tried tried that and was just amazed um so i, I phoned will and asked him if i could come down and do harvest um and that kind of started it off really not a bad place to start having this no i mean i think we've got one of will's wines tonight which um which i, I helped make that wine so it, it's it's really interesting. I mean, and um, you know what you what you kind of talk about for your backstory and just how you found it and just kind of took the plunge. It's uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I kind of I, I guess I was lucky. I was in a position where I could take a bit of time off and decide what I wanted to do next. And 
and make sure that what I did next was something I was really, really passionate about. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, I just, I just didn't think I could do it in England. I thought I was going to have to move to France, and we were talking about moving the kids and doing all that kind of we stuff. All, we all had that discussion. Right. Okay. <laughs> Do you ever speak to um, Stephen Skelton? Yeah, I am. Um, yes. Yeah, funnily enough, he helped us um, okay. in setting up Westwell in the first place. He's a, a friend of a friend, and I was kind of introduced to him, and he was really helpful. I heard when I was doing um, all my recordings, that name kind of popped up over and over again. He seems to be this like, mythical figure that people would think about doing wine and he would disappear going, you can grow wine here, it will be a profitable venture. Yeah. Uh, and then five years later, everyone said, well, we can grow wine here if it's profitable, it's yet to be well, seen. But. I think he was heavily involved in, the, in setting up Chapel Down originally, yeah. wasn't he? And then the Lamberhurst vineyards as well. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, no one's got more knowledge about English wine than, than Stephen has across the board. Um, and he still does his, his vineyard map, which has got, was it 150 wineries, but 500 vineyards in, yeah. in the UK, which is, you know, it's quite interesting, which is why we need more people like you making, <laughs> <laughs> making wine and having wineries, really. Yeah, we, well, we try. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>I want to bring a bottle of the Hoffman Rathbone um, Classic Cuvier 2013, which is, uh, um, I think, a really interesting sparkling wine that uh, that I discovered a few years ago, and um, uh, or a couple of years ago. And I uh, figured it'd be an interesting thing to bring around the table. So, see what you guys mm, think. Thank you. So, I think the first commercial release was I don't know, two or three years ago or something like that. I I think I was one of the first people to get it on my shelves um, from Indigo Wines. Um, from Ben Henshaw, and uh, it was just somebody brought it to a barbecue, and I just thought it was awesome. And he's telling me the story, but I think they make only a few, you know, a few thousand cases, and um, they do a blanc de blanc as well that they make maybe I don't know a thousand bottles or something, something, something minuscule. And um, um, he just brought it, and there was a lot of great wines on the table, and it was just like it stood out. It had a lot of texture. It had a lot of um, you, you could just tell it was kind of a um, I don't. I hate. It's got loads of that autolytic character. Exactly. Yeah, really like this kind of grower esque with the kind of texture, mm. texture style, and it's like, wow, that's really, that's really cool. And I love that, you know, in an era where the sparkling, you know, English sparkling wine seems to be in the press of this mainstream benchmarking this really annoying way, as far as I'm concerned, seems to be the only country where, in the headlines, the people, the PR agencies, trying to build this false grandeur of this like made up, manifested chateau. And it's just like, why? The whole world is going in this other direction, and yet we're chasing, you know, forty-year-old uh, ideology of uh, what a great sparkling house should be. And and um, so, anytime I get to come across a, a small producer of uh, of any sparkling wine that's making something that's got character and you know its own kind of um, personality, then I'm I get quite excited. And this one um, lived up to the billing for me. So I was figured, hey, it'd be fun wine to bring tonight, anyway. No, I mean Ulrich Hoffman. He's, he's a super winemaker. I. I I used to go down and help him out bottling. In fact, some of his like, first releases have my like, hand scribble on the back because it's all hand numbered. Um, so if you can't read the number, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but no, I, Ulrich, Ulrich he, he does good stuff. Um, and it's consistent. Um, and I think he, you know, he had a, he had like a little like industrial space down by, um, I think it was like Red Hill or, or somewhere in that, that vicinity. He's now since moved, but you know, it's it effectively just this really sort of, you know, bare bones warehouse. And um, what's nice about him is that, you know, he comes from a slightly different background. And in order to afford to do this stuff, he's doing some custom crushing. And 
Yeah. It's interesting because it's got such a lovely label on it, but it doesn't actually say anything about the wine, really. I mean, maybe that's personally done. Maybe it's like the, the illusion of, of sort of, you know, the, uh, the hidden spring type thing. What I love about the grower champagne or the kind of, you know, or however you want to categorize it, um, you know, um, um, in champagne, kind of just the, the, it's the variety, the diversity of styles and textures that all these kind of individual grower, you know, producers are making. And I think that, you know, um, as champagne has always had this homogenous identity, English sparkling wine has started to develop the same kind of homogenous identity in the mainstream based on what you, you know, and, and no disservice to or, or, or disrespect to Waitrose and all the great kind of mainstream places championing English wines. But it creates some of a, a false impression sometimes when the mainstream is your only reference point. And so, um, you know, we build up this idea of like English sparkling wine maybe only tastes like this, or I mean, everybody knows Nightsimber and Chapel Down and all these people that were trailblazing pioneers to establish some credibility for the region. But there's this funny equilibrium you need to hit where you get this mainstream wines that need to establish the, and validate the region in a commercial, this is a good wine way to actually pave the way for people to come and do something interesting. If that makes any sense, and you know, we need Michel Roland to go and make these Bordeaux-esque wines everywhere in the world, so people say, "Oh, that region can make, you can make an interesting, a good wine in Bulgaria, or you can make a good wine in this random part of South." Well, America. I think it'll only it'll only end up, um, you know, separating out. I think that this kind of idea of having a single English sparkling wine, I think you're kind of right, but um, I think there are more and more people who are trying to do something in their own kind of style. I mean, obviously, we're trying to do something with riper fruits and trying to make something which is kind of a you know, it's got a really full fruit flavour behind it rather than a kind of crisp, lean, refreshing thing, which is the g g your general English sparkling wine, which I think probably comes from the acid and what have you. But I think, I think there are more people who are trying to do things differently now. I think also there's, I think you kind of, I've got a lot of friends who kind of like wine but aren't working in wine or into wine that, that heavily, but even they, you know, you know Nightingale might be in their first point, a kind of jumping off point into English wine, but they go out to London restaurants and most decent London restaurants now don't just have a Night Timber or a Chapel Down or, or a Ridgeview or something on the list or have something else on there. They have still wines on there. Um, lots of kind of, you know, I see pet, like English pet nuts all over on wine lists these days. And well, I think it's also, it, well. you also have to have, you know, a, an amount of people making seriously good wine before you can start to have people making these more interesting things, I think. You um, need an industry there somewhere and I think there's a lot to be said for the kind of pioneers behind Night Timber. And I mean, people like Dermot at Whiston, I think is really, you know, he's yeah. making some really, really solid wines. Um, and you've obviously got Hattingley as well. And these people are making stuff that when you go and buy an English sparkling wine, you're not thinking, oh, is that going to be good or is it right. not? You're thinking this is going to be a really good bottle of wine. All right, it might not be your kind of, you know, your racy, it might not be your kind of, you know, your pet nat or your more interesting or developed thing, but it's still a really, really seriously good bottle of wine. And I think that allows us the opportunity to try and do some other things. Yeah, and that's kind of my question too, because I think you get to a fine line where all of a sudden, um, as you need those pioneers to really establish the credibility of the region and build the industry, to your point, yeah. and that kind of paves the way for people to come in and do more artisanal wines or smaller scale wines. But then it's only so many people buying that wine. And so as you fight for market, when does that? What's that balance? How do you, you know? It, it's well, we're not there yet. So we'll tell, you, we'll tell you when we hit that mark. <laughs> I think it's a really good point to touch on. I think we should talk about it a little bit is that, you know, I think restaurants have really, in the last 24 months, have really come around on English wine in terms of really wanting to champion um, a different uh, wine than maybe they had in the past. And, and um, do you think it kind of... Well, I think a lot of that to do, is to do with the quality that's been raised. You know, I mean, you can, now, you can now put an English sparkling wine onto your wine list and be really confident in it. 
um, and I think maybe previously that wasn't quite the case. And I, I know that, you know, I mean, not so long ago you were, t you were trying kind of particularly English steel wines, and you just, you know, I mean, you wouldn't cook with them. Um, but that's, that's changed a lot. I mean, to, to that point, I mean, you have to put things in context, right? So we're now in sort of the teenage years of what the industry is, yeah, go, is exactly. going through, right? So yeah. we're going through, you know, if you think about in respect to maybe where Oregon was or where Marlboro was about 30 years ago, 40 years ago, they all had these teething problems. And I say, I say that in sort of not in, in a negative way at all. It's just, it's just it's what growing up is all about, right? You, you have you know, milestones and you have road bumps and, and that's effectively what we are as, as UK producers or, or winemakers are going through are these sort of teething issues and finding out and pushing the boundaries to find out what works, what doesn't work. The last five years have really seen a significant shift in, in not only sort of winemaking styles, but also in investments and who these new players are. So you have people like myself and Westwell and um, and a few other sort of handful of folks that are, you know, we're, we're pushing the boundaries a bit um, and we're sort of trying to see what we can do with the fruit that we get or that we have. Yeah, I think I think people like the kind of, you know, the Sharma producers and um is it Ben who runs Flint Wines is doing some really interesting things. Yeah, and, yeah, as, um, as is Fritz. Yeah, so, yeah, Fritz, the Charmats yeah. in, in Sussex. Yeah. I think, yeah, there's a lot of people kind of pushing against it. Um, I think one of, one of the things that I find quite interesting is that there isn't really a kind of, um, it's not really a kind of open space. It's not like, I mean, you've got all these like really, really good winemakers who are around and have developed all these great brands, but um, I, there seems to be a disconnect between them and the kind of new people that are coming up. I think it would be, be really, really helpful if you could have some more kind of shared information amongst those people. I think that would be useful for everyone. Really. So what do you think that what do you think is the barrier there? Is it a bit of kind of like I don't know, you commerce think, you think that was the kind of thing that Wine GB would be doing, doing kind of some shared workshops or whatever, but they don't seem to be I'm not quite sure where their where their aim is at the moment. They seem to be talking to government a lot, but nothing really happens from that. So I'm not quite sure what their raison d'etre is really. Yeah, I'll I'll bite my tongue before I uh, put anything on the record. But I think you know I think it's an interesting <laughs> challenge and and not just for here but kind of in wine regions across the world, right? Well intended bodies that um, are kind of betrothed into the um, the source of their financing, right? And so, you know, while they may be well intended, I think there's always a bit of an incentive conflict that, that kind of clouds the mission to a degree, right? And and um, okay. I, I, it's interesting because you see it, but you know, um, I can use a parallel to the VQA in in in, um, in Canada, right? Which is the Vintners Quality Assurance, which is this standard body that you you know, if you want to you know, make wine or get, have that label that it's giving you an assurance of like the source of the fruit or or whatever you know the, the other parameters about it. But if you're really only making a you know, small scale of wine, I mean, to you know, if you're making a couple thousand cases to pay the premium to be a part of that body, I think which then the, regulates... That's, that's really similar to the PDO and PGI thing in the UK, where you, you pay to, to put your wines into the PDO and you have to follow certain guidelines to get there. But as that's, I mean, as a consumer, does anybody in the UK have any idea what PDO and PGI mean in terms of English wine? Right. They just don't, because there is no marketing around that kind of scheme. So there's not a lot of point in paying the premium to be part of it if it then goes out and no one knows what it means. So you've paid however much to join it and it means nothing to the consumer at all. So. And, and I think that it, it's still dependent on this this antiquated idea that there's a binary good or bad wine, yeah. right? Yeah. You need to have this to be good wine or this to be bad wine and the spectrum is so much more diverse, right? It's, it, it, I always use the parallel that w of music and you know if you put 
music through a filter of somebody saying this is uh, this is music and this isn't music. I mean, if you just go back historically, you know, and we've talked about this in past episode, filmed here about South African wine mm -hmm. and the um, the regulated regulatory bodies and their um, impedance on wines to market that are fantastically characterful wines. Um, you know, can you just imagine the artists that you'd lose if you had to shove them through a previous filter? Well, there'd I mean, be Prince, no, Bowie. I mean, just there'd, like, there'd be no Miles Davis. There'd be no Philip Glass. No. <laughs> there'd, there'd be no like Brian Eno. Exactly right. I mean, even just look in the look, look within the kind of postcodes around here, right? You just you lose anybody that's kind of from W two, right? That was ever there. So it's um, yeah, and, and I think wine's no different. And so I think it's it's uh, some of these bodies are well intended, and you know they protect from some exploits that um, big companies have definitely taken advantage of in historically in other regions. But at the same time, there doesn't seem to be quite the um, syn syn synthesis with the actual market or the you know, mm. reconciliation with how do we actually help people discover wines that they love. So really excited for this next chapter. It's uh, uh, a pretty special trio we're going to taste uh, side by side, which is always uh, always nice for comparison. So Adrian, why don't you tell us a little bit about the three Chardonnays we're going to... So uh, first one's Chapel Down. Um, I knew that someone was bringing Davenport, which is kind of like a very, very small, organic, um, totally um, indigenous yeast winery. And I thought, let's bring something at the other end. So this is 2013 Chardonnay from Chapel Down, based just up the road from us um, in Westwell. So it's near, it's not far from Ashford in Kent. Um, let's see what you think. So I haven't tried this one before. I've tried their um, their Kits Coty wine, which is single vineyard, um, a bit more expensive than this one. But I mean, that's delicious. Oh, the Kits Coty wine. Yeah. I have to say, like on the nose, I'm not a huge fan. There's like a lot of like green pea and asparagus and just uh, uh, underripe fruit is basically is, is kind of what I get. But it's nice because it, it starts getting sort of sort of tertiary aging flavor. So so there you, you get some some evolution, which is what. I think adds to this wine. And you feel a bit of that kind of reductive character on the nose too, which kind of yeah, gives you that. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I mean, I love a bit of flintiness and gunpowder, and in my, and you'll you'll see in my wines, it's 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 uh, it's very much part of what I like about Chardonnays. The reason I bought it is because it's really really easily available. This is the kind of wine that you can get anywhere at the moment, um, and if you're interested in, in English wine, this is the kind of thing that you're most likely to be able to see. Um, so I, I, having not tried it, I thought it would be interesting for us to try it, particularly as I, I knew that somebody was going to be bringing some Chardonnay. No, I think it's great. I mean, you know, Chapel Down, you know, depending on who's listening and, and how familiar they are, especially if, if for some of the international listeners that we have, um, their familiarity with English wine. I mean, some of the only wineries they're likely to have ever heard of are Chapel Down, Nightimber, right? I mean, and maybe Ridgeview, maybe some of the other ones that we can that that, that we all know and see around the UK, but. Um, um, it's interesting to put it in this context now as a reference point, right? So I think it's I think it's really fitting what we've talked about a little bit already in that you know some of these big, uh, more famous uh, historic wineries in the UK, historic, um, are the reference point. And I think it's really interesting to show that comparison and give that context. So uh, no, I think it's really interesting. I mean, and and look, this is a wine that's quite commercial in, in a yeah, way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really but easy drinking Chardonnay. You know, it's so 2013. Where I mean, it's a it's, it's a, got it's a touch of sweetness. Wine, right? it's, a it's a bit of kind of mallow character in there as well. Chapel Down. Um, I interviewed Josh for uh, one of my episodes, and uh, yeah, I mean, I hadn't been to Chapel Down, but that's a huge kind of tourism operation. They've got a kind of gin cocktail bar up in Kings Cross now, 
so yeah, kind of in terms of getting a, like an English brand name out there from a tourism perspective, they're really nailing that. Um, I mean, with with I mean, with brands like these, you know, it's very easy to knock them, but we forget that. I'm not saying we're knocking them. Just in, in general, you know, as, as a big commercial entity, you know, it's we always look down on them. But without these guys, they paved the way for a lot of what we're we're going on now. So. You know, people have their own opinion, you know, it's in terms of, of what good wine is. And that's the beauty about it. It's all preferential, right? But I think at the very bare bones of it, you know, without Night Timber, without sort of Chapel Down, without even Ralph Finney, who now just sort of popped in, these are all forwards um, marching people that have changed the face of, of our industry at, at large. And, and it helps us as smaller producers and albeit we're a bit more niche to to kind of get into the mainstream a bit, bit easier if that makes sense yeah and look i mean you guys are just like a few years into your new venture right in terms of yeah, commercial wine and you know years ago at some point they were going through the same thing as a brand and i think that's that's one of the beauties of you know regions like the uk or any other kind of you know less than 50 year old region commercially right it's that there was always somebody along the way that helped have to, had to be the first right and yeah, yeah. and and i think it's uh, as you say it's easy to um criticize and knock the behemoths and, but, i mean and i think also that you know they get to the point where, where i mean they have to be creating the same wine each year i mean oh, not maybe the same wine each year but they have to be hitting a level of consistency um, and I think Josh is a really, really good winemaker and he consistently hits good levels on his wines. What I think we're trying to do is try and do something slightly different, which is try and represent the year. And you know, some years it's going to be in a particular style and other years it isn't. So when you buy a Westwell Chardonnay, for example, you're not sure quite what you're going to get. You know, it could be a kind of really flinty style. It could be really ripe, it could be whatever. Whereas if you're going to buy a Chardonnay from Chapel Down, you know that you're going to get a consistent style. And I think that's slightly different. Yeah. But I think when you get to, I mean, I don't know how many bottles of that they're making, but you know, they're selling a lot of bottles of wine, and I think they need to be hitting the same same levels with each bottle. Look, we're drinking a five-year-old English Chardonnay that's still yeah. wine, right? I mean, <laughs> forget the name on the label. I mean, there's like there's some life in that glass, and the wine is not the wine is plenty alive. Yeah. Like, there's lots of textures. There's some things that maybe, as you say, are too different people's tastes, but I mean, that's a feat in itself. So. I, th I think, ironically, you know, blinded, I wouldn't take this as as Chardonnay. Like it doesn't have the the characters I would associate with Chardonnay immediately, um, at least not on the nose. And, and there's a bit on the palate. You get some of that really sort of honeydew melon, and a little bit of that savory reductiveness there. Um, but I, I, I yeah, I, I think blinds. Be interesting to see this blinds, to be frank, and in, in, in a panel or in a room of people who are enthusiasts or or, or psalms. I, I, I doubt that. A lot of people get that as a Chardonnay. I've decided to bring uh, Gus Burns um, Guinevere Chardonnay 2014. Um, these guys have been the benchmark for Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and they're still wines and, and evidently they're only making the best vintages. Um, this is a uh, particularly interest for me because I love Chardonnay and uh, I have yet to, to have in recent memory um, the, the Guinevere. Um, and so it's, it's a really nice benchmark test because I also make a Chardonnay from different, not from Kent, but from, from Essex. And so it's nice to have a, 
a bit of a, a reference and you know these guys are highly regarded for what they do. Um, they're mainly known for the sparkling wine, but you know. They do a really good shot um, Pinot Noir as well. In they, yeah, exactly. Only in good years. So it's, it'd be interesting to find out. I mean, this, you know, this is now coming up on four and a half years of age, um, whereas the Chapel Down was, was five years, five and a half years. Um, so it's, it's, it also gives us a sense of, I mean, these guys are located quite close to each other, not that far off at all, maybe a half hour apart. Yeah. So it gives us a sense of, of not only style, but of, of vintage variation as well. Because, you know, being a, a UK wine producer, climatically, um, it's always a challenge and sort of fighting against nature versus man type thing. You know, we, we talked about some of the nuances of the chapel down that was quite interesting that it was able to achieve, though maybe it was lacking a, a few things that we were looking for. This is much more cohesive wine. You can feel that there's a little bit more depth, a lot more ripeness. There's just a little bit. Um, Better equilibrium in the wine. Really nice finish as well. Really long finish. Really long yeah. finish. Really ethereal. I mean, you can feel that kind of development in just a really elegant way. If you're talking about wines that you'd like to serve blind. I mean, that that would be a great wine to serve blind. Totally. Would you definitely pick that as a Chardonnay if you're? Yeah, full full on. Okay. And there's a bit of of new 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 oak nuance. Uh, I think you used to make 15 percent or something like that, but um, but you get a bit of that a bit of that structure. And, and for me, the biggest gripe I have with, with English still wines, or, or Welsh still wines, can't, can't leave Wales out. They make some good wine out there. But, and what you touched upon earlier is just like, you know, renowned, zesty, fresh style. And what I find is that there's always a lovely start. There's like, you know, you got the quintessential aromatics, like this lovely sort of bouquet and perfume of, of what, you know, white floral aspects, what really is citrus. And then you get this sort of short, clean, crisp finish. And for me, and what I try to achieve at Black Book is, is a story, right? And, and so we want a, a start, a middle, and a finish. The mid palette is what brings wines together. And I find that even having this, you know, effectively for the first time, this does it well. I find that there's, there's length, there's texture and, and viscousness, vis viscosity. And, and there's a lovely sort of inherent Chardonnay varietal character. And so it's all about preserving the varietal character. You know, that it's, what's the point of making a Chardonnay if it doesn't smell or taste like Chardonnay? I mean, obviously there's some exceptions, but for the most part, you know, and I think that it's been, there's been some consideration with how it's been made. But, you know, they're also very, very commercial as well. They're, they're approaching half a million bottles of sparkling wine this year, so. Um, you know, it's, but I think it's, it's a super, super wine and it's really well made. So following the, the Guinevere, um, I, I've decided to bring my Chardonnay as well that we make, um, which is the Painter of Light, named after Joseph Turner, um, the, the painter. Um, and uh, this comes from a vineyard in Essex called Clay Hill. Um, and it's in Latchigan, so it's about 49 miles away from us. So it's really an hour and 20 minutes. And this was the first grower that we worked with. So 2017 was our inaugural vintage. I should probably pour myself a glass. Um, 2017 was our inaugural vintage. So this is our first release ever as Blackbird Winery. Um, and and the, the guy that owns the vineyard, this is a chap named Dale. He's third generation farmer. He diversified like um, the previous owner at Westwell. Mm -hmm. um, he was approached by Chapel Down 
to grow on their behalf. And, and instead of just sort of agreeing for them to plant and lease the land, he had the foresight to plant what he thinks would be best suited for, for the area through, you know, via speaking to the consultants. And so he planted burgundy clones. And that's really integral for what we tried to achieve at, at Black Book um, because it's still wine clones. They're burgundy clones, which means that they have a shorter growing season, lower acidity, better sugar accumulation, better phenolic ripeness, so flavor, flavor, flavor development effectively. Um, and, uh, and so we were really pleased. And for me, this is a favorite wine that, that we've made. Um, it has the potential for to age. Like when it was first released, it was a little bit taut and austere. Um, but it's now sort of been six months in bottle. So the way we made this, indigenous fermentations, whole bunch pressed straight to barrel, 30% um, new oak from one large 500 liter barrel, a punch-in effectively. Naturally fermented, full mallow, indigenously, um, unfiltered, unfined. It was aged for seven months in those vessels. Um, and then we, we whack it with a bit of sulfur, just because I want the wine to last more than a day once it's opened. Um, and then we got out to market. So there we have it. I think, you know, I know you're, you describe your wines as, as smashable. Um, I, I think this, like, you, you want to take it all time with it. Like, it's, it's, de it's definitely yeah. drinkable, but, like, it's, you want to kind of sit with it for a bit longer. It's, it's really satisfying and quite, you know, opulent in terms of, uh, it's, in, in that it's very expressive and it's intense and there's a lot of, like, it's quite, got a lot of seriousness to your point. Yeah, it's not very smashable, but it's very, you know, tasty no, to drink. You were talking a lot about kind of mid-palate earlier on, and I, I don't know if this is from the least stirring, but it's, it's completely different to the other two that we had, and it really does have a real mid-palate, which I think, I think that least stirring must have something to do with it. I mean, how are you least stirring? Are you... When I remember. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, I mean, I try to do it twice a week through, through the winter time. So when, so the thing is with mallow, it's called like the ghost fermentation, right? When you, like, when you do malolactic over the course of winter time, because we have no temperature control in our winery. So we're kind of at the mercy of the elements. Although the temperature is consistent um, seasonally, right? So in the summertime, it's like 18, 20 degrees in the winery. They were in time, we're consistently about eight degrees. And overnight, it gets down to about three or four. So being that low of temperature, um, the mallow kind of comes in and out. So I think that's part of it, actually. I think it's the fact the ghost mallow, mm -hmm. um, the ghost fermentation is, is, is part of it. So the mallow of, comes in as the wine warms up. And then and runs through. And then goes out. So mm -hmm. I think that's part of it. So there's, there's an inherent creaminess about it, um, which is really, really lovely. Um, in terms of, and it's on gross leaves. We don't rack it off. So most people with Chardonnay, in terms of the UK, do a very cookie cutter way of doing things, i.e. They, they press it straight to tank, they settle it, they cold stab it, and then they still tank ferment it, or maybe a proportion goes into, excuse me, into barrel. Or, and then further to that, you know, in terms of mallow, half the wine we may go through mallow, or 20% or whatever, so it's, it's partial malolactic. For me, we will never have a problem with acidity in the UK. Like that is for sure in current day, right? And then that's sort of been shown through the previous two wines and, and the other, the other um, us bubbles as well. I mean, yours actually, the city, the, the bubbles, I'd, I'd be interested to find out what your TA is on that because it's, it's quite low. Yeah, it is quite low. Um, but um, so for us, you know, putting through mallow is just an, uh, another depth of, of texture and, and, and complexity. Um, but you're, you're kind of, you're, um, 
you're obviously relying on the weather. Um, you're not forcing mellow or introducing any mellow, so you're reliant on what's already in the wine from the indigenous yeast in the first place, and then what happens to warm it up and where it gets to at that point. Whereas I, I would assume that these these wines were both made with additional mellow. Yeah, yeah, I and mean, they, they probably they probably you know added uh, lactobacillus and and let it go through. Because um, yours has still got a nice acidity to it. I mean, it's not a there's no fierce acidity to it, but that acidity is giving it a real but giving it, it really I, something. I, I would compare this so from so I this is blind tasted by a number of people, and I've got primarily northern Sonoma County is where like a lot of people place this wine, which is great, but it's off at the same time because I want it to be expressively English. Our whole concept is to be varietal defined and also terroir driven. But that's the thing is that you don't have enough reference points for that, right? And that, you know, and that's, and that's why wines like this are important, right? Because to get a full expression or understanding of a site, you need to taste the kind of different expressions of it. And if our only yeah, reference point you is- You can only really do that if you step back as a winemaker. Yeah. If you're, if you're introducing all sorts of winemaking techniques and adding, you know, Yeast, nutrients, mallow, etc., etc., etc. Then you end up with a wine which is very different from this. And further to that point, like from from this year, we're I'm, I'm aiming to get um, site distinction. So I, I want to get um, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir from varied sites throughout sort of the south of the UK to show the difference between soil type, microclimates, and just really have it all encompassing. Are you going to do the, cl the clone specific as well? There's a, there's a few people doing kind of clone specific. I don't have enough space to be clone specific. <laughs> I have like I have like seven tanks. I have forty five barrels. What what is your capacity of interest? Um, we could so if I get enough storage space for my bottles, just purely winemaking, we do forty to fifty tons. So this vintage we did six and a half tons. So over four wines we did four five thousand five hundred bottles. A twenty eighteen vintage, we treble production to 17,000 bottles, and we did 21 tons, spread across uh, what will effectively be seven cuvées. So now the idea is to, to put about 40, 50 tons of fruit through there, but it's, it's finding the right site, finding the right grower, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a difficult one. Well, this is a really good kind of finale to the trio. I think it was um, really, I mean, it, it's, um, it's a younger wine than the others, obviously, so it's gonna have different, different textures and posture, but I mean, it's really, chiseled wine you feel a lot of the kind you feel the posture the skeleton of the wine i mean and you can see that it's got the um yeah posture to age a bit and i think that'll be really interesting because what we haven't talked about is it's got this very beautiful reductive style as well yeah. but that it's cohesive to the structure so it's, it's in balance it's maybe young a bit youthful and a bit tense but you can see all the parts there and i think that like you know with really good chardonnay you can you can build that and, and this wine has 10 years aging without a doubt Definitely. no doubt and 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 we've we've chosen to put closures in that are guaranteed for 15 years. So I'd be, you know, we've held back 24 bottles to see how it evolves in the next sort of decade. <laughs> cool, so like, you know, for the next 24 years, we do this once again and just- Yeah, yeah, totally, let's do it. Let's do it, hopefully my wines aren't dead. <laughs> Me too, hopefully I'm not dead. <laughs>